1: Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator where each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Nara Prendergast, The Spectator's Executive Editor.
2: And I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor.
1: On this week's episode we'll be debating the ethics of surrogacy, we'll be learning about our broken food system and we'll be discussing the enduring appeal of holy grail hunting.
2: First up, in her cover piece for the magazine, journalist Louise Perry writes about the politics of surrogacy and questions whether it is ethical to separate a newborn child from their surrogate mother. She joins us now, along with Sarah Jones, head of Surrogacy UK and five times surrogate mother. Louise, could you tell us why you wanted to write about surrogacy this week?
3: Well, so it was all triggered by the Law Commission's report, uh, which came out a few weeks ago has been in the works for a while, and we have been given some sort of sneak previews of what they were likely to recommend. And and as expected, one of the crucial things that the Law Commission has recommended to Parliament, the decision obviously now rests with parliamentarians, is that the default parental status of children born to surrogate mothers um, should be changed. So at the moment, uh, when a child is born, they're automatically assigned legal parentage of the surrogate mother and her spouse, if she has one, Um, and the intended parents have to go through the process of getting a parental order, which can take several months. What is being proposed is is that that is reversed, so that when the child is born, their legal parents are the intended parents. And if the surrogate mother changes her mind and doesn't want to, Relinquish custody, she has to go through the process of applying for a parental order, which means that there are basically more impediments now for surrogate mothers who change their mind about handing over the baby. My argument is that I think that one of the things that's really troubling about surrogacy, I mean, I think a lot of listeners will be familiar with some of the uh, human rights abuses we've seen in some other countries and some fairly awful cases that have hit the headlines. But I think that actually there's something more essential that is troubling, which is about the fact that surrogacy necessarily means separating um, newborn infants from the women who've just given birth to them, causing stress both to the infants and to the mothers. I mean, there are obviously cases where that has to happen and when children need to be removed from the women who've given birth to them because of risks of abuse or, or, or some other kind of tragedy. But I think what surrogacy does, which is so morally concerning, is that it sets out to engineer that situation. And that was what I chose to focus on in the piece.
1: Sarah, you work within the surrogacy industry in the UK and have also been a surrogate mother yourself five times. Let's start by talking about the Law Commission's recommendations. What, what did you make of them and do you think the current laws are fit for purpose?
4: We were very pleased with the proposed reforms because the laws at the moment aren't fit for purpose. They don't reflect the lived experiences of surrogates, of intended parents, of people born through surrogacy. So we needed the laws to sort of catch up with what was actually practically happening with UK surrogacy cases. Uh, And overwhelmingly surrogates in the UK didn't want legal parenthood of the children at birth. We also don't like to be called surrogate mothers. It's just surrogate. So that terminology hasn't been used for about 20 years or so. So as as surrogates, uh, we don't wish to be financially, morally or legally responsible for children that aren't genetically ours. That, weren't, uh, that aren't part of our family. So for us, the, the legal reforms are really positive and it means that all of the checks that happen on intended parents and surrogates happen before conception, which is a really positive thing because at the moment they happen after baby's born, which is way too late and doesn't offer the protections for surrogates who may be vulnerable, who may not be making um, an informed choice. So now all of those checks happen prior to conception, which I think we can all agree is, is the proper time to do those sort of checks.
1: And what do you make of Louise's main argument in the piece that fundamentally surrogacy severs that bond between the surrogate and the child? What, what,
4: what, what's your response to that? That's not based in fact. To be honest, that's feeling, which is fine, and I understand that lots of people have that feeling that there should be this immense bond between a person and and somebody that give they give birth to. I actually, and that is the case for mothers and and children. That's exactly how I felt when I had my children, but that's not the same for surrogacy. So we're we're looking at what happens with mothers and children that they have in their family, and we're sort of. Projecting that onto surrogacy, which actually isn't the lived experiences of surrogates and people born through surrogacy. I mean, my eldest surrogate baby is 20. So, two of my surrogate babies are now adults. So, I've had like two decades of contact with those surrogate babies. And that's just not their lived experiences. They didn't feel, you know, loss at being born into their genetic family. They have a loving and close relationship with me, but I'm not their mum. I'm their surrogate. I have a special place, but they have a mum and they are very secure and safe in their own genetic family.
3: You know, I'm sincerely glad to hear that Sarah has not had a bad experience with surrogacy and also that the children that she's given birth to through surrogacy have also, you know, don't feel traumatised by it. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. The problem is that, I'm sure, as I'm sure she'll ignore it, that isn't always the case. There are surrogates who find it emotionally really, really difficult. There are children who reach adulthood or teenagehood and feel quite bereft at not having relationships with the mothers who, who with, with the women who gave them life. And unfortunately, it isn't always the case that surrogates and children can continue to have relationships long term and we know that there are just so many examples of you know not necessarily financial exploitation although of course that does go on but emotional exploitation of different kinds which can result in really tragic circumstances even within families so I think the problem is if you know we can always find I think sort of idealized examples where this has gone as well as it possibly can do although you know there is something kind of very troubling about the fact that when you when you are tasked with Carrying a surrogate baby to term, you know, you are tasked with basically deliberately trying to deaden the, the natural emotional responses that one ought to develop during pregnancy and after birth. You know, that as I write about in the piece, you know, the fact that human mothers are so strongly bonded to their babies, more so than for other species, is because our babies are particularly vulnerable. And there are all sorts of things that happen to the maternal brain during pregnancy, which sort of prime us to be really, really attached to our babies. And yes, there are instances where that doesn't happen because of, say, maternal mental illness, and to some extent, you can deliberately try not to develop those feelings. And that's something that surrogates or surrogate mothers sometimes talk about, the fact that they will sort of deliberately work against those instincts. I think those instincts are good instincts. You know, I think that actually the love that mothers feel for their babies is really the, the, like the foundational human experience, right? Like it's it's the babies being adored and bonded to their mothers You know, if we can't all accept as a society that that's a good thing, then like what on earth can we agree on? Right. And I find the idea of having an industry being basically endorsed by the government, which is what the law commissioner are asking for, that sets out to disable and break that emotional link really troubles me. And, and as I write about in the piece, you know, most European countries, and particularly Western European countries, are nowhere near as liberal on surrogacy as we are. We are already an outlier in Europe. And what the Law Commission's proposals would do would be to push us much more towards an American norm, not in terms of permitting commercialised surrogacy, because they're not, they're not permitting that, but in terms of having a much more open Attitude towards surrogacy. And, and I don't think that we should be drifting towards America. I think that actually we should be taking note of what Western European nations are doing and be much more sceptical about the expansion of this industry.
4: Yeah, I mean, there are, there are a few things that I want to respond to. Um, the first one is this presumption that we as surrogates must have to deaden our emotions in order not to feel a bond with the child. We liken our bond with our surrogate children like the bond that you have with a niece or a nephew. You know, it's not maternal, but you can still feel an immense amount of love for that child and you would do anything for that child. Um, you know, it's that type of relationship. It doesn't mean that it's maternal But there is a lot of love there and a lot of strength of that emotion that's there. You know, surrogates don't have to deaden themselves. You know, we're not all cold and unfeeling. We actually have a lot of emotions and we feel particularly bonded to our surrogate children, just not in a maternal way. It's just another baby in our family that we have a relationship with. So again, that's an assumption that surrogates don't have these feelings. And I think the reason that surrogacy is sort of not welcomed across Europe in countries like Spain and Italy is because they're predominantly religious countries, you know, and and that's, you know, religion is dictating what women can and can't do with their own bodies. So I'm quite pleased that the UK doesn't have that model because I wouldn't want any religious groups to dictate what I can and can't do with my own body. I I am ardently against commercial surrogacy in all of its forms. I think it has the uh, ability to, um, to really bring in vulnerable women who are having to undertake surrogacy rather than choosing to. So I am completely against any sort of moves towards a US model. And I don't think the US model is is just about commercialisation. It's about legal agreements which dictate what a surrogate can and can't do with her own body. And in the UK, the legal reforms strongly protect a surrogate's body autonomy, which again, is something that the surrogates uh, campaigned for. And where the Law Commission has definitely listened to our voices. You know, there aren't going to be legally binding contracts. We're not going to have to do things like they do in the States, which dictate when you can have sex with your husband and how far away from your house you can travel. So it's really preserved what surrogates want. And the legal reforms have to be honest, primarily been uh, gone the way that surrogates want it to. For us as, as surrogates, we feel very protected by all of the reforms that have been put into place.
1: Do you, do you think the reforms will increase the rate of surrogacy in the UK?
4: I, th- I, hope, I hope that it will um, encourage people to stay within the UK to undertake surrogacy so that people don't go abroad and go to countries where there aren't as many safeguards and where surrogates are not as protected as they are in the UK. So my hope is that it will encourage people to stay within the UK. I'm not sure whether it will increase the number of surrogates we have in the UK. Here at Surrogacy UK, our surrogate applications greatly outweigh our IP applications. So there is already a great number of people that volunteering to be surrogates within the UK. So my hope is that the protections that it now offers will mean that um, people are protected through that journey. And
1: on that note, could, could you take us through your own thinking of why you decided to become a surrogate? As, as well as Louise's piece this week, we also have Paul Morgan Bentley writing for us who who used a surrogate um, for his, his, the birth of his son, Solly. And I think it's an interesting topic. So perhaps you could explain why why you chose to become a surrogate.
4: Yeah, it was, um, at, the, at the time I'd got one daughter, I didn't have any intention to have any more children, I was in my mid-twenties at the time, and it was genuinely a case of why not, it was something that I knew I could do, um, I... I you know, was quite happy being pregnant, but didn't want any more children of my own. I had a very strong bond with the intended parents that I helped. Um, they actually ended up being the godparents to my two younger children that I had after I gave birth to my first surrogate baby. And for me, it was just a case of why not. People volunteer to do things all of the time, which other people can't understand. You know, I don't understand somebody climbing Mount Kilimanjaro for charity. That would not be something that I could do. And I don't understand people that would do that. However, I knew that I would be able to undertake surrogacy and that I could genuinely, you know, change somebody's life by doing that. And so for me, it was was more a case of why not? why not do it rather than why would I do it? So, uh, and for me, it was a really positive experience. And, you know, I'm obviously within the surrogacy community and know um, hundreds, if not thousands of surrogates who have all had really positive experiences. So for us, it is more a case of why wouldn't you do it?
1: Thank you, Louise and Sarah. And next, in the books section of the magazine, Olivia Botts reviews several recent books all of which seem to warn against the dangers of our food system and what we're eating. Liv joins us now alongside Henry Dimbleby, the author of Ravenous, How to Get Ourselves and Our Planet into Shape, which is one of the books that Liv reviews. Liv, can you start by telling us the overall impression that you got from your research and did it sort of point to the idea that absolutely nothing is safe to eat these days?
5: It was a deeply depressing article to research, to be honest with you. The, The books I was looking at were mostly looking at the the dangers within our food system um two of them focusing quite quite strongly on ultra processed food which are foodstuffs that that sound like junk food but they're they're not actually necessarily they a lot of the health foods we find in supermarkets are ultra processed foods or upfs it's looking at um foodstuffs which have a combination of industrial processes and also ingredients often stabilisers or emulsifiers which you you wouldn't find in a domestic kitchen and what they're doing to our bodies and our brains and and our planet. There's then Henry Dimbleby's book which is looking um, at more of the problems in the food system beyond GPF, how we're dealing with climate change and meat eating and farming but then there is also Louise Gray's book which is called Avocado Anxiety and was specifically looking at the paralysis of consumer choice because there is really no food that we can eat that isn't complicated that doesn't impact some part of the system in a bad way even if we're choosing it for otherwise responsible reasons mm.
2: and henry the argument in your book ravenous is that we're not as consumers we, we are not necessarily at fault for the state of the food system. We are part of it. We are a cog in the machine of a broken system, which sort of encourages these dependencies. I wonder if you could you could take our, our listeners through that. And I wonder if you think there, there is grounds for hope
0: for uh, improving the system. Yes. I mean, First of all, I'd like to say, I, I am sorry that Olivia has ended up so fearful after reading this book. There is a tremendous amount of hope. But actually, it's really simple, which is... Despite all of the complications, basically, if you eat more veg cooked from scratch and eat about a third less meat, you're doing a really great job and you'll probably be healthy and uh, you'll be doing better things for the planet. The reason we talk about kind of being a cog in the machine, even though you don't realise it, is that the food system is connected by all sorts of different feedback loops. And when it comes to our health, there is a very toxic feedback loop that we call the junk food cycle. So you have to realize that our appetites, which we all kind of take for granted, are actually unbelievably powerful things. And the example we give in the book is the um, the Chilean rugby players who crashed on their way back in the Andes from a tournament in Uruguay. And they survived the crash up in the Andes and they survived by eating the bodies of their friends and their relatives. And once the flesh had gone, they ate the, the... the organs, the lungs, and finally the brains. So appetite is is an incredibly powerful driver. When you're really starving, you don't think about anything else but food, and you don't want it to go wrong. And it's going wrong because the foods that Olivia were talking about, food companies have realized that appetite responds particularly powerful to certain kinds of food that are calorie-dense, that are quite soft, that are low in insoluble fiber, and they give us enormous pleasure rush. Plus, they make us full less quickly. Because when we were when we were evolving, things like honey or fat, we should you know should give us a lot of pleasure. And food companies have realised that, and so they have spent more and more money marketing those things. We've eaten more; they spent more money, and we've got sick. And that is a really. And it's not. It's not like the food companies wake up every morning thinking, you know. How do I? How are we going to kill children today? It's just that that's where the money is. So if you're an executive in a sweet company, you are as stuck in the system as people, you know, trying to control their appetites are. So what I try and do is say, how do we do two things? We, we're living in this swamp. We're living in a de- very difficult environment, uh, and some people's genes find that environment much more difficult than others. So some people find it difficult to live in the swamp. Other people have swamp-resistant genes. And we need to do two things. We need to drain the swamp. I'm not sure that's the best, uh, you know, in the current <laughs> climate, that is the best analogy, but we do, we need to create a better environment. But also we need to teach people swamp craft. We need to teach people while the environment is this bad, what they can do to control the appetite. And that is the key thing. How do you how do you make your appetite less voracious? You shouldn't be thinking about reducing calories because that will make your appetite more voracious. You should be thinking about how you control your appetite, and you do that by eating whole foods, by eating lots of fibrous vegetables, and not eating the kind of food that Olivia's talking about, that that just makes, you know, once, literally, once you pop, you can't stop. And that is the intention of the food, is to make you buy more and eat more.
1: And Henry, how, how do you respond to critics, and you must hear this quite frequently, who say that it's not the government's job to tell us what to eat, we should be able to decide what to eat.
0: Well, I think that's a kind of uh, fine ideological position. It ignores the science. So people know exactly what they should be eating. But because of the strength of appetite, they find that very difficult. One percent of us were obese in 1950 and 28 percent of us are obese now. We haven't had a mass collapse in willpower. So if you take that approach, what will happen is this. The NHS will grow and grow and grow. Type 2 diabetes, which is just one condition of diet-related disease, is projected to cost more to the NHS by 2035 than all cancers do to treat today. So the NHS will swell, we will become sicker. And then on the other side of the equation, Andy Haldane, the chief economist at the Bank of England, uh, made a speech a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, saying that Ill health and food is the biggest cause of non-communicable Ill health, avoidable ill health is the single biggest thing holding back the economy. So what that looks like is the NHS sucks in all the money from other parts of government. Our tax receipts go down because GDP isn't growing and we end up impoverished and sick. And, you know, it's fine to believe that government shouldn't get involved, but that is the future because the way the system works, that's the future you're going to end with. If you take that view. Well,
2: Liv, from reading uh, your book's piece this week, it doesn't seem that Henry is alone to think that this is um, fundamentally a policy problem, or at least a, that there is a policy problem, or at least policy can play a big role in helping this problem.
5: Right, so um, probably the, the most strident example is Kimberly Wilson's Unprocessed, which is looking specifically at the effects of what we eat or don't eat on the brain and brain development, right the way from preconception, so a, a, a mother's nutrition even before she becomes pregnant, right the way through to how it affects the onset of dementia. And she uh, agrees that that ultra-processed food is, um, is a policy problem rather than a person problem, and that uh, we're sort of hardwired, or have been, I suppose, rewired by the invention of ultra-processed food to, to crave it in this specific and quite destructive way but she uses as another example prison food and the fact that there is um, good science to suggest that vitamin supplements could make a huge difference to the amount of aggression we see within prisons and that there have been studies that that show that this is basically a no-brainer but that despite the fact the government are in possession of this information, they don't enact it and don't bring vitamin supplements into prisons to ameliorate this because of the way in which they've outsourced prison catering and, and that sort of uh, care of prisoners. And she's um, she is extremely, extremely angry, actually, is, is the the way to describe it. Um, she is incandescent that the, the government could be in possession of what she considers to be pretty much incontrovertible evidence, and I'm not a scientist and I am not an expert in in brains, so I'm caveating that. But she certainly believes that this is an absolute policy position that, that should be taken, and I, I think describes it as legal negligence, that the government refused to do this in prisons. And we see similar analysis of ultra-processed food, certainly uh, Chris Antillican's book, which is called Ultra Processed People, which examines this kind of food in, in great detail, comes to the same conclusion as Henry, that this this really is something that goes beyond the individual consumer because that is what the purpose of this food is is designed to do. It goes over our heads, over our hormones, over our bodies, and without some kind of policy restriction, we're not able to fix it on an individual level.
0: And what's interesting is almost everyone believe, who's looked into it believes that... Uh, So there are very few people who now still think it's about exercising willpower. And if if you're suffering, then it's your own fat fault. You know, anyone who's spent any time looking at this. But there are now two camps in terms of what you do about it. So I described the junk food cycle as an interaction between appetite and the commercial incentives of companies. And I've talked a lot in the book about how you hack the commercial incentives of companies. The other option, if you don't want to do that, is to hack the body. So hack the appetite, change the appetite. So Steve Barkley, the health secretary, recently commissioned a report to see what it would cost to put 12 million people in the country on appetite-suppressant drugs. So there you say politically it's too hard too hard to make the system, to make the food system more healthy, will change appetites. And I think that while there are... If you have a BMI of over 35, so you're severely obese and you've been miserable all your life because you've found it difficult to manage your weight and you're sick i would definitely suggest you go to your doctor and talk about semaglutide wagovi azempec those drugs because they can be a life save they can be a life change of people but i have deep concerns about about putting a significant portion of the population onto a drug that has only been tried out on you know on thousands i think there's all sorts of things that could go wrong by doing that and it shows you know that's just a, a lack of a lack of political um will
1: when all these books have seen together what, what they seem to be saying is that all food can be damaging whether that's to ourselves or to the environment do you think it's better to prioritize food that is good for us as individuals and as a society or food that's good for the environment I and mean, or is there a food that manages to do both and if so what does it
0: vegetables and pulses so literally, uh, you know, meat, you, it's fine there, to eat.
1: food that's delicious that manages to do that? Well, <laughs> say, uh,
0: uh, so uh, if you reduce your meat eating, you know, uh, uh, a a ribollita is delicious, a, a cassoulet is delicious, which has a little bit of meat and lots of beans in it, and particularly have a salad on the side. So you can get yourself tied up in knots about this. But actually, if you cook from scratch, and you eat more vegetables, fibrous vegetables, and about 30% less meat, you will make yourself healthier and you will be doing a great thing for the planet. So don't get stressed about it. Just eat more veg, cook from scratch. Enjoy cooking for your friends and family and your children. Teach your children how to cook. Teach your godchildren how to cook. And enjoy food and enjoy your life.
2: Thank you, Liv and Henry. Finally... In the magazine, Reverend Steve Morris speaks to modern-day Holy Grail hunters who are obsessed with the search for the cup of Christ. He joins us now, along with Scabies, drummer of the punk band The Damned and a keen Grail hunter. Steve, as you point out at the start of your piece, the Holy Grail, or at least a Holy Grail whose possible authenticity is recognised by the Vatican, is housed in Valencia Cathedral. If that is the case, why are so many people still searching for it?
6: I think it's essentially the story of loose ends, because you can never be sure. And it's that sense of maybe there is something out there that drives people on, that sense of quest and adventure. And I think people want something kind of positive to hang on to, not just Christians, but people of all all spiritual seekers are looking for something that's a bit more to life. And I think the Grail fulfils that. So I suppose that really, it's it's, it's a never-ending story. I don't think we'll ever find it possibly, but um, there's always the possibility that the real one is out there somewhere.
2: And why do you think the Grail has uh, such a tension around it as compared to other Christian artefacts or, or sort of Christian mytholo- sorry, mythological or legendary relics? Why does the Grail hold a particular place in
6: people's minds is it, is it just sheer fame yeah i think it is fame but it's also it's spun off into other areas so stories about the templars and stories about knights and stories about british history and other histories around the world so it's it's kind of like a snowball's gathered pace it isn't just about the the last supper mm. you know it's a it's, it's a it's a more general story about the archetypal love of something that's about to make more to life than we can touch and feel
1: Rat, you're mentioned in Steve's piece as a keen grail hunter. Could you tell us how you first got into grail hunting and where it's taken you?
6: It
7: was my parents' fault, really, because they, uh, my father particularly was very big on mythology. And, you know, the kind of uh, the thing that there's probably one percent of things in the world that don't really have a logical scientific explanation. And he always had an appeal for things like that and a very serious mistrust of the church. And I think that I, you know, I didn't get dragged into it so much. It's just I was around when it was being discussed. And um, there were sort of certain elements of it that I really enjoyed. I never, you know, the the term grail hunter is, is very convenient as a tagline. But I certainly wouldn't really, you know, describe myself as a grail hunter. It's more that the grail becomes a part of... The story that I'm involved with, which is sort of René Chateau and this mysterious priest in the south of France. And the Templars and co kind of evolved from that as a possible source of this priest's wealth. And the thing of there's no smoke without fire. There's these very, very old stories of the Grail with the Cathars and the Cathars kind of having a better handle on spirituality than the, than the Roman Catholic Church did and really a, a, a lot of it's just about you know, those are the stories and, and they exist and I think there's a certain element in all of us that really wants to kind of believe that there's something that proves there's a, another life, a mysterious world that we don't really have a name for, that we don't know how to plug into. I think those are the I've certainly never ever expected to find anything <laughs> With any, you know, I've never had a metal detector. I mean, I've been out on some fun parades, shall we say, into interesting places. But, you know, I think um it's a bit like if you're a gambler, you know, and you need the money, the last thing you should do is bet. <laughs> well, Steve, on the point
2: about provability, I suppose, judging from what Rat just said there, it seems to me that the, the mystery around the grail is part of the appeal. It's almost a mystery that doesn't want to be solved. So I mean, assuming that someone were to find something that they believe to be the grail, I mean, how, how would you even go about proving that? Is it possible?
6: I don't think it is, because there's so many different opinions. I mean, where would you take it? Who would you go to? Which experts might agree with you? Which experts might not agree with you? It's all so wrapped up in, in politics, and uh, I, I don't think you'd ever be able to properly authenticate anything. And maybe that's part of the whole magic of it. You know, we're just never going to know. Thank goodness yes and
1: right your grail hunting has taken you to france are there other countries that you've you've sort of been keen to go to or have indeed gone to
7: very fortunate as my career as a drummer took me around much of europe you know just being on tour and stuff so i got got to check out quite a few places in germany and
1: And what, um, what kind of research do you do to kind of work out where you're gonna where you're gonna look
7: well the shape of the castle is a big deal uh historically you know um for example, Wevelsberg Castle in Germany, which was, um, which Nazi was it? Himmler, I think, was his place where he he intended to build, rebuild. You know, the Teutonic Knights of the Round Table, and made a point of rebuilding the castle purely because of the shape of it. Because the legend tells you that castle that the the Grail is hidden in is the same shape as a spear. So. Anything that's got a point on the end became kind of quite fair game, especially as somewhere like Wavelsberg that had a very knight rich history, so we say, you know there was a lot going on there before the Nazis arrived, so it was um always regarded as somewhere with a with a spiritual thing you know you after medieval knights were very kind of honourable and good chaps and didn't cheat at cards or anything they were very. You know, it was all about honour. And that feeds back to the, the earliest retelling of the Grail is in Chrétien de Troyes, who told the whole story at court, which really is you know, quite something to think that we're here talking about this now because somebody was entertaining, you know, the throned heads of France.
2: Steve, you, you say in your piece that the, the church nowadays is, isn't particularly interested in the idea of the Holy Grail or the, or the search for it. Why do you think that is the case?
6: It's a real, it's a real conundrum, isn't it? I mean, I, I spoke to maybe a few dozen of my friends in the clergy, and not one of them really was, had any interest. They all saw it just as some old story that wasn't worth dealing with. And yet, you know, you go back not that long ago, people like C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and others saw the Grail as a really powerful story of the spiritual life and of the national life, you know, as part of the life of the nation. I think what's happened is the church has become very managerial, really. Uh, as the church has declined, it, it's clung on by thinking that maybe it could be a bit more like a business, almost, with targets and all those kind of things. And
7: but you, you have to convert so many punters a year, Steve, is that what but
6: That's is? what I'm wondering, yeah. Maybe, maybe, I should, maybe I should get paid by results.
7: I mean for many other corporates I mean why should you be any different
6: If we're paid by results I'll be quite a poor man I think that's the one trouble with that one Uh, (laughs) Not if you found the grail then uh, (laughs) then they'll come flooding in
1: And then talking (laughs) about finding the grail the music journalist Christopher Dawes claims that he has the holy grail displayed on his mantelpiece in Brentford. Do you think he could be right?
7: Well as I know where he got it I think I can quite safely say that isn't (laughs) (laughs) a holy grail whether it's the holy grail is is another matter so where did he get it rat if you don't mind me asking well it sounds almost unreal actually we were we were quite good at poking about in the dark and going through doors that you weren't supposed to and we found ourselves in this very small room with this really huge ornate cupboard with all kinds of Things carved onto it you know nothing weird but you know like Adam and Eve and kind of the odd dragon and horses it was a beautiful thing and we opened the door and there was this metallic cup it it, it just got weirder the whole weekend that we were away first of all there was a a Knights Templar initiation ceremony that was carried out where we were staying which up until that point there were no Knights Templar nobody they all been wiped out, and they were very, very unofficial. The line was they're not around, and then suddenly there we were in this chapel full of them, swords and cloaks and everything, and then poking about in the cellar, and then you find the metallic carpet in a weird-looking wardrobe, and you know you're not really supposed to be there, and hiding things in plain sight was the Templar way. So,
1: I'm sorry, you don't think that's the Holy Grail? I mean, it sounds like it could be.
7: <laughs> yeah, it, it sounds like it could be, but I'm sure it's not. My own feelings about the Grail is that it's actually a lesson in life. It's, It's about the journey that we go on from point A to point B. To have a purpose is a wonderful thing. And if you have a purpose, it will make you do things and go to places that you wouldn't have gone to before. I think that's what the Grail actually is, is this thing about life experience and, you know, being good.
1: Thank you, Steve and Rat. And that's everything this week. You can read everything we talked about if you pick up a copy of the magazine. I'm Nora Prendergast.
2: And I'm William Moore. And we do hope you'll join us again next week.